And let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you now to be with us in this time when we consider your word together. Lord, we are your sheep, the sheep of your pasture, and we pray now that you would feed us out of your truth. Lord, help us to understand what is given here, and then, Lord, apply it to our hearts by your Spirit. Where encouragement is needed, give it. Where correction is needed, provide it. Where instruction is needed, Help us to hear and to understand. And Father, we pray that your presence with us would be evident in your blessing upon us as we look at your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So I'm going to ask you to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 again for just a moment. That section begins by asking... Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, before we begin talking about what is said here specifically, it might be helpful to say a word about discipline itself. I can remember as a young father uh, trying to convince my children in the midst of some disciplinary session that what I was doing, I was doing because I loved them and because I believed it was ultimately for their good. All of which was true, but a little difficult to communicate through all the tears and the wailing. But that was my aim, to try to get them to understand that, even while they were being corrected, even while they were being disciplined. Now, discipline has a specific purpose and design. And parents' discipline, with these convictions that it's a testimony of love and it's the right thing to do and it's good for their children, but it helps when both we and our children have some understanding of what the purpose and the design of discipline actually is. And basically, it is intended, at least as it's intended here, as we see it in in Hebrews chapter 12, Basically, it has three aspects. Chastening, instructing, and nurturing. For discipline to be effectual, it really needs to include all three of those elements. And all of three three of these can be found in the wise counsel that's offered to us about discipline in the book of Proverbs. The chastening aspect, that's reflected for us in passages like Proverbs 13.24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
And there's the chastening part set forth for us. The instructive aim also appears in Proverbs. In Proverbs 29, verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And then you have the nurturing part, the evidence that this is an act of love. And again, Proverbs deals with that. Proverbs 3.12, the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So you see these same three themes emphasized in the book of Proverbs when it talks about disciplining. That is the same three themes are applied here in this idea of discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. The proper biblical understanding of discipline, attended by, I should say, the proper administration, the biblical administration of discipline, attended by a sincere dependence on God by prayer, carried out with the proper biblical design at heart, will, by God's grace, produce the good fruit of repentance, wisdom, and obedience, loving obedience. But there are no shortcuts, beloved. And the work must be done prayerfully, and it must be done carefully, and it must be done obediently and consistently, and with faith in the covenant promises of God. Now, this is, of course, just one half of the discipline equation, the half where you're the discipliner. The other half has to do with the one who's being disciplined. You see, beloved, discipline must not only be administered biblically, it has to be received biblically as well. Uh, Having disobeyed in some fashion, I have to receive the stinging part of correction as just. Just, first of all, because it's not like I didn't know there were going to be consequences for my behavior before I engaged in it. Even before I did that thing that I wasn't supposed to do, I knew if I did it and I was discovered, there would be painful consequences for having done it. Secondly, because no matter how painfully the chase or how painful the chastening may be for my correction, it's not nearly as painful as the consequences will be if I am not chastened. So it's really better for me to accept whatever discipline comes on me because that painful discipline is nothing compared to the pain that might result from me being left in my sin. So as the one who receives discipline, I have to pray to learn from the experience and to be thankful that I'm loved enough to be left to the sort of behavior, not to be left to the sort of behavior that will grieve me and God and others. The worst thing that can befall me in this situation is for me to walk away as ignorant and as foolish as I was before I came into it. One time, when I was in elementary school, I determined to do something 
that I knew was wrong, that I knew my parents did not want me to do, that I knew they would not approve of. But I had cleverly planned my disobedience, and I was sure that I would get away with it and never be caught. And I can still see my dad to this day leaning with one arm on the mantel and um, a little boy down below him. He's at the fireplace. And he's just, you know, he just come home from work and he's just uh, doing dad things and leaning on the mantel. And he just casually says, how was your day, Glenn? And I said, great chuckling to myself because I knew that I had done something I wasn't supposed to do and there was no way he could know about it. And at that moment, he looked down at me and replied, I'm going to give you one opportunity to tell me what you did today. And with those words, I knew it was all over. I knew that I was in trouble and that somehow I had been caught in this disobedience. And that's where previous discipline came into play. I had learned that the look he was giving to me meant three things. First of all, that he knew what I had been up to, and I needed to confess immediately, and it was hopeless to try to prevaricate. Secondly, that he was not going to let me get away with it because he cared about me. And thirdly, I was going to pay a price for that foolishness. And the only question was how, how steep of a price was I going to pay? That was the only question. I had learned from having been disciplined before that this is what this meant when he looked down at me that way. And how steep the price was going to be, well, the answer to that question rested with me. I could confess and admit my sin and go ahead and take my punishment, or I could try to lie or try to get out of it somehow or run, which was never uh, successful. Sometimes my brother and I would get into trouble together, and my brother always went under the bed. So that only left me to go over the bed. And, of course, I was a perfect target going over the bed. It never, never was a good plan for me. But I knew there were going to be consequences. I never tried that trick again. I was in the same circumstances on other occasions that summer. But I'd learned it was wiser and better to obey because of the discipline that I was faced with. In fact, having been dealt with that way, I never allowed myself again to get into that position where I'd be tempted in that way after that year was over. Now, with that background about discipline in mind, that idea that discipline has three basic purposes or designs, chastening, instructing, and nurturing, let's return to Hebrews chapter 12. And you see right away that Paul is concerned with a problem. And that problem is addressed in verse 5. We're introduced there to a problem 
relating to those who are disciplined by the Lord. And it's addressed by asking the question, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as a son? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. You see, the saints to whom this is addressed seem to have forgotten, or at least they were in danger of forgetting, something important as the children of God. In fact, it has drifted, or has the potential of drifting, so far out of their thinking that they have become oblivious to this vital part of God's word. It's gone out of their minds. It's gone out of their hearts. They they aren't thinking about it. And as we see that problem here that's being addressed by Paul, it's wise to remember that this forgetfulness, especially when it involves spiritual matters, is not just an innocent fault, but it's a result of the original fall. As Guj points out, our minds, your mind, was created in Adam to be the repository or the treasury of God's word and his truth, of his wisdom and his promises and of his law. Our confession of faith says in part, under the paragraph on the creation of man, after God had made all all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So our minds were originally intended to be this repository of the truth of God, of the law of God, of, of all that we know about God and his will. But that state was lost in the fall. When Adam fell into sin, the result was that all the faculties of men and women were impacted. And it results in neglect and the willful loss of true knowledge and the application of that knowledge in a proper way. So this forgetfulness of theirs isn't just an accident. It is a problem that stems from their fallen nature originally. Now, notice also, and I think it's the most interesting thing about this statement, is what it says about the whole word of God. Many of you will recall what it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I think many of the children here have even memorized these words. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what are we shown here? We're shown, beloved, is that just how true that statement is. Because while many of you could probably tell me if I quoted part of that verse, if I asked you, where would I find the verse that says, all scripture is breathed out by God? Many of you could probably give me that reference. But 
If I asked you, how many of you could give me the reference for the passage quoted here in Hebrews about the Lord's discipline, do you think it would be as many could give me that reference? Where that would be found? Well, is that because the verse about the word of God is more important than the verse about how you respond to the Lord's discipline? Certainly not, right? It's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It can also be found in the book of Job, chapter 5, and verses 17 through 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. I want to ask how many of you are familiar with those words from Job chapter 5. But I think they're probably at least not familiar to most of us. And what I want you to notice here, beloved, is that the author of Hebrews, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit, says that they are accountable if they have so ignored and forgotten this passage so that they have, in their daily walk with the Lord, become oblivious to what it teaches. Do you see he's holding them accountable here? Have you forgotten this? Have you forgotten this point about the Lord's discipline and why and how he disciplines? He's holding them accountable for that. He's holding them accountable because they are in danger of beginning to lightly esteem or regard the discipline of the Lord and to grow weary of his reproof. And it's interesting. These words that are quoted here were penned by Solomon, but applied here to the Hebrews as though it were written specifically for them, and then, according to our understanding of the word of God, made applicable to us by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter when it was written or where it appears in the Bible. The writer of Hebrews says, don't you remember that way long ago Solomon wrote this? Where he didn't say, let me tell you something Solomon wrote long ago. He says, have you forgotten? what God has said to you in his word. So you see, that word is as pertinent in the days of the Hebrews as it was in the days of Solomon, and it continues to be so for you and me. Now, there are two evils here that they are potentially entering into. But before we talk about the evils, I want you to notice the affectionate tone of the matter. Because this is actually discipline in itself here, in the form of an admonition. And you notice the affectionate tone from the start. You're exhorted, he says, not as enemies or as strangers, but as the children of God, beloved children of God. He's saying, have you forgotten, beloved children of God, sons and daughters of God, what he said to you, what he's written to you? And it's this very fact that makes what follows so serious. 
as those adopted by the work of Christ on the cross, the one who endured the cross despising the shame, the one who um, uh, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, if you are truly adopted through that work of Christ, it's unseemly that those who were so adopted should then despise the very correction which proves the relationship. It's unseemly. Are you children of God through Jesus Christ? Then you're going to be disciplined. Because God loves, uh, disciplines every child he loves. So if you're a child of God, you're going to be disciplined by him. And have you forgotten that? The author's asking. In verse 6, he puts it this way. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now he says that they're in danger of lightly regarding this. And to regard something lightly is to consider it so insignificant as to be unworthy of notice. And in this case, it is to treat the discipline of the Lord with a sort of disdain or even a disinterest. And I think you can easily see why this is worthy of rebuke. How can something designed for your correction, designed for your instruction, designed for your nurturing, be insignificant? How can something aimed at you because of the love of God for you safely be despised? It can't. In fact, it's a shame if we treat any aspect of God's love for us with disdain of any kind. His discipline is carried out with perfect wisdom, with perfect love, with perfect care. And it's not to be thought lightly of, but it's to be thought soberly and carefully about. And the testing of your trial can arise from all sorts of of quarters. You might be being tested by illness. You might be being tested by family difficulties. You you might be being tested by problems at work or, or problems at school. Those things are all doing their testing and trying under the hand of God. He restrains or he loosens those tests in accord with his promise to you and to me to work all things together for your good and our good. The determination in himself to glorify himself by all his works. These trials, these tests, this discipline is coming into your life not arbitrarily, but according to all the promises of the Lord, with a divine purpose in mind to correct, to instruct, and to nurture. The second problem is weariness. They're in danger of thinking lightly about it or becoming weary under it. To grow weary is really well illustrated for us in Mark chapter 8 and verse 3. Jesus says there, and he's talking about the crowds that have been listening to him preach, I have compassion on the crowd 
because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And that phrase, they will faint on the way, is the same word that's used to talk about the growing weariness here. Growing faint under the discipline of the Lord. This is a reaction to reproof or to being confronted by the word of God and your conscience with the truth about your thinking or the truth about your speech or your behavior with weariness. Here you are, you're being disciplined and your reaction to that discipline is not what it should be and the Lord puts before you his word, he puts before you his truth and he lets that word and truth stand before you and you go weary under it. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to abide by it. Good says, man by nature has a fainting spirit in himself. He's like a lamp that will fail to give light if there be not a continual supply of oil. And we exhibit this weariness, beloved, when we chafe and when we revolt and when we gripe and when we murmur under the hand of God's providence. We exhibit disdain when we give way to those temptations designed to discourage us or to engage us in doubt or fear or sometimes just blatant disobedience. Sometimes we crave a lesser trial or a different one. And this goes beyond merely praying for relief. We can pray for relief. This goes beyond that. And extends to rebellion and anger and disobedience to the Lord. Where we know what we should be doing, but we refuse to do it because we don't like the discipline we're under. We want a different kind of discipline. We want a different degree of discipline. We want it to be shortened. We want it to be changed in some way. Many of you will recall Paul's thorn in the flesh, by which he was tried and disciplined. Three times he prayed to be relieved of that burden. And the Lord finally answered Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What if instead of saying, Paul now, instead of saying, therefore I will boast uh, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. What if instead of saying that, Paul had said, therefore I am depressed and dejected. I've prayed for this three times and I'm not getting, I'm not getting to escape the discipline. I'm told his grace is sufficient and I have to abide under it and do what he tells me to do. I'm depressed and dejected. You know what? I refuse to submit. And I stand a rebel against God. I doubt God's love for me. And I've abandoned, I'm going to abandon my duties as a Christian because I can't stand this discipline. First of all, that wouldn't be here unless it was for condemnation purposes in the word of God. But it's not at all what we anticipate from Paul. What we hear from him is what we anticipate from him. 
that being told that in this discipline, the Lord's grace is sufficient for him, he accepts that and receives it and says, okay, then I, I'm, I'm joyful about my weaknesses because in them God can be glorified. If Paul were to answer otherwise, it would not only be shocking, every believer would know it was wrong, even sinful behavior. We have here what Dixon describes as the two evils to which we are inclined when we are disciplined by our loving Heavenly Father. We either harden our hearts and minds against it, treating it as a light thing, or we faint and become discouraged and stop fighting and resisting, give up the race and give way to the sinful impulse. But Hebrews 12 wants to bring us back to the purpose designed in discipline. To stir up patient endurance in persecution and every other sort of trouble. If we think of it in the context of persecution, we can gain some good insight into the things that we are now, and as we're more likely to endure in the future, more persecution, the things that we are to do for Christ and his kingdom. First, how do we view the trial itself, the discipline itself? Do we view it as a sign of God's love and our adoption, as something allowed by God for our correction and for our edification? It's interesting that often when such trials begin, the first question is, what's wrong with the world? I'm talking now on persecution. What's wrong with the world? Why is the world persecuting us? What in the world is wrong with the world? Why We only want to do good. We only want to do right. Why are they persecuting us this way? That's usually the first question. It might be better to ask, is there anything wrong with us? Why are we being persecuted? Why is the Lord allowing us to be disciplined in this way? How has it happened, for example, in the midst of such potent salt and light? How has it happened that in the midst of such potent salt and light, our gospel has become so tasteless and our world so dark? Have you thought about that as you've looked out over the world today and you see the change in your culture? If you and I are being such potent salt and light, why is that happening? Now the answer may not lie with us. It may lie in other things. But it's at least wise for us to ask that question, why are we under this challenge, this discipline of our faith? Maybe we're where we are now because we have not been what we should have been before. Every persecution offers an opportunity for the church of Christ to be corrected, to be educated, and conformed more to Christ himself. But I believe, and others with me, 
that the principle set down here is broader than this immediate application. Maybe it helps to illustrate it this way. You contract a virus, and someone says to you, you know what, you should get your rest and keep up your fluids and take whatever nourishment you can. Is that good advice when you're sick? Yeah, good advice, right? But let me ask you this. Are there other times when that's not good advice? Are there other times when you come to somebody and say, you know, you better not keep up your fluids. And you better not eat what's nourishing. Here's some junk food. Have that. Is there ever a time when that's, that would be good advice to give to somebody? No, so you have this general truth that it's always good to do those things. But here you have a specific application. The person's sick. And so you're taking that general truth and you're applying it specifically. And that's the case here. It's true that in many ways you were disciplined by the Lord out of his love to you. And one of those ways is in times of persecution. But the principle of loving discipline must not be forgotten at any time under any form of trial or correction. Because he doesn't just discipline by persecution. He disciplines by other means as well. And that discipline still has the same goals in mind, the same purposes, the same design. To pinch you, to educate you, and for God to show his love to you. Now as we conclude this morning, and we're not quite done with this subject yet, but as we close and you survey your trials, past or present, Reflect on these three basic principles of discipline. Chastening, instructing, nurturing. Beloved, the God who loves you and me doesn't spare the rod. And he doesn't do it because he loves you. And is therefore, as the proverb says, diligent to discipline you. Um, you know, when we talk about somebody being diligent here in this world, we kind of know what we mean. But when we're talking about the Lord being diligent, um, we understand that it's much more intense. And he is diligent to do this. Where you need to be disciplined, you will be disciplined by him. And you will be because he loves you. You and I are fools by nature. And we need to kiss the rod and to remember that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And thank God that he loves us enough to use it, to apply it to us. Secondly, I am ignorant, but God has promised to give me wisdom. And that requires at times the strong hand of discipline on me. I need it because I am ignorant. In Proverbs 29, 16, it says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You know, the well-known words of Jesus often become so proverbial in a particular context, that they kind of can become frozen there 
and they can lose some of their broader usefulness. Let me show you what I mean by these words. This is Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. They'll be familiar to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now those words are quoted proverbially or or famously when we're talking about the need for humility and meekness and the bearing of burdens. But does it have anything to say about what we're addressing here? It sure does. Take my yoke on your neck and learn. That's the way it begins. Take the discipline of the yoke on your neck and learn. Because you learn from that discipline. And then you will learn, if you take that, my yoke upon you, the discipline of of living in my name for my sake, if you take that yoke upon you, you will learn meekness and you will learn humility. The discipline produces the learning. It's in the times of our trials and discipline that we learn more about ourselves. We learn more about our God and his grace and the power of his love and the depths of his care for us than at other times. It's under those times of discipline, under those times of sickness, when we don't know where to turn, we don't know what to do, and we learn something about ourselves. We learn a new spirit of humility and trust and confidence in the Lord. And we learn more about his love for us and more about the power of his grace in our lives. And we learn more about the care that he has for us. It's in those times when we find ourselves in trouble within the context of our homes or in the context of work. It's while we're being disciplined by the things that fall out upon us. When God allows those things to come into our lives that we're drawn closer to him. Our prayer life intensifies. Our trust in him intensifies unless we think lightly of that discipline or we grow weary under it. But if we don't and we accept the discipline, the growth and understanding comes. And that brings us to the nurturing that comes from our Father's discipline. Back to Proverbs 3.12. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. As we'll see this evening, Paul tells the Thessalonians that they can take confidence in their adoption into the body of Christ precisely because of their persecution. He tells that to them directly. He also said to the Philippians, you can be sure of your place in Christ because of the persecution you're enduring. It's evidence that they are considered fit for the kingdom of heaven because God has lovingly dealt with them as sons. The proper administering of discipline by the God who loves us is carried out with the blessed harmony of all his divine attributes. And by God's grace, it produces good fruit in his sons and his daughters. It It produces the fruit of repentance and wisdom and loving obedience. 
And if you're under the hand of God's discipline in some way, and that fruit is not being born, then you have forgotten this admonition that the Lord disciplines every son whom he loves. And you are treating it lightly or you're growing weary under it. And you need to repent of that and accept the discipline of the Lord and look for the production of the fruit he promises. The fruit of repentance, of wisdom, and loving obedience. Elizabeth Prentice wrote, Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Lord, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Elizabeth Prentice was also the author of Stepping Heavenward. But it's not surprising that she wrote such words. They flowed from her pen while her third child had just come to be deathly ill. And the reason she was so concerned was because she had already lost two children very close together to illness. And now a third was being threatened. Her life was, says her biographer, full of difficulties, including a body racked with pain that made her an invalid. She is reported to have said while going through all this, and that is a wonderful mercy to be allowed even to suffer if thereby one can glorify him. It's a mercy to be disciplined if in the end God will be glorified. The hymn, as I said, was written after she'd lost two children very close together and the third was deathly ill. And it shows the heart of one corrected, one educated, and one nurtured by the discipline of the Lord. May the Lord work in our hearts so that we may not forget this admonition that the Lord disciplines all who he loves and that we might bear, we might see born in us by the grace of God that precious fruit that comes from the discipline of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a blessing to be the sons and daughters of the living God. And Lord, so often the emphasis of that in our world today is placed on all the wonderful things that are a part of it. But Lord, among those wonderful things is your faithful promise to discipline us as your people. Lord, we pray that we might receive the discipline from your hand as Paul did. Trust that your grace is sufficient for us. And Lord, seek to know the education and the nurturing that is designed in that suffering, in that pain. That, Lord, we might find in our own hearts the production of that precious fruit, that fruit of repentance and wisdom. And, Lord, obedience, loving obedience. 
that brings us along in our sanctification. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so. If there's anyone here who finds uh, him or herself under the discipline of the Lord and yet has not recognized that it is the hand of God upon them, calling them to repentance, I pray, Father, that you would even speak to their hearts now through your word. And may they look up for grace and mercy and help in the time of need. And may they find that redeeming grace which will make them rejoice in their discipline. Father, we are humbled by the fact that through that discipline, we are given the opportunity to glorify you. Lord, keep us from lightly esteeming your discipline. Keep us from growing weary under it. And rather, Lord, let us be glorifying you by our obedience and by our love and by our trust in you and your grace in our lives. Please, Father, hear our prayers and answer them for Christ's sake. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.